Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience so that you and I can get to success a lot faster. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because I value your time and you are here to learn. With that, in the last episode, we started a series of commercial real estate financing questions and we learned what are the differences between residential and commercial loans, what are the loan terms that investors can select from when looking for a commercial loan, are these loans assumable, do they need to work with a local lender, and today we are learning about the basics. How do you go about getting your first commercial loan? We're also covering what happened in 2008 with banks and what is the best way to find great lenders. We are interviewing John Pascal. He is a managing director of Paramount Capital Advisors, PCA, and before joining Paramount, John served in a similar role as principal of JMB Financial Advisors, where he originated over $1 billion of capital. Before that, he served as senior vice president and chief investment officer of Brookdale Living Community, a company that provides senior housing nationwide, and he has done quite a few other things that we are about to find out. Here we go. John, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. You were introduced by someone that I highly admire. Why don't we get started with uh, you telling us a little bit about you? First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. In terms of my background, I basically source both debt as well as equity for real estate companies, groups that are either buying, developing, or refinancing their deals. And I've been doing this for close to 15 years now. My background or um, my experience prior to that has always been in real estate, both in senior housing or institutional real estate buying, in addition to senior housing, multifamily, retail, industrial, in hospitality. So my real estate background really runs the gambit in terms of product type and in terms of the type of roles I've played in various companies. I'm so happy to hear that you have been doing this before the last recession, which I'm sure you have a ton of uh, stories to tell us. Yeah, yeah. But why don't we first get started with the very basics of commercial real estate financing? Is a job needed for especially first-time investors? Do they have to have a current job? Does the credit score matter? What is the minimum down payment for that type of investor? And then we can go over typical loan terms and things like that. From a lender's standpoint, it's very important 
that the borrower has experience executing the business plan that they're proposing. It's a little bit difficult, admittedly, to get financing for first-time investors or developers. So who I deal with is more experienced real estate groups because it's just very difficult to finance the deal otherwise. But I would encourage anybody who's looking to just kind of get into the business to maybe partner or work with uh, someone or a group that, uh, you know, has done what they're proposing to do before. And it's also important that uh, the borrower has a good balance sheet. So typically a lender would like to see net worth equal to or above the loan amount and liquidity, meaning cash or marketable securities, equal to at least 10% of the loan amount. So those are kind of the prerequisites for a lender to approve moving forward or lending to a borrower. From a first-time investor's perspective, if they are partnering up with someone that has done this before, do you have any idea of how that would work, that relationship? The answer is it all kind of depends. If the borrower, the investor, is guaranteeing the loan, then they're in a position to basically control the deal, earn a promote, meaning that if the deal goes well, that they get an additional share of the profits as a result of their willingness to guarantee the loan and as a result of executing the proposed strategy. In a situation where it's a first-time investor, my guess is is that they're going to want to have a partner who, because that partner has experience, is going to be more involved both from as a guarantor as well as from the standpoint of executing the proposed strategy. If that's the case, then that partner is also entitled to something above and beyond what their investment percentage is. I can certainly get into more detail, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to bore people because it gets a little bit more involved in terms of describing overall potential structures. It could get complicated, but it really depends on the deal, depends on the investors. We don't mind getting bored on that particular topic. So if you can just give us, let's say, an, an average range, that would be already very helpful. If uh, an investor comes in, supposedly, quote, experienced investor comes in and puts in, let's say, 20% of the equity versus 80% of the equity, then they're going to be entitled to different structures. In other words, if they're putting in only 20% and not guaranteeing the loan, then they're not going to get as big of a promote you another word for it i guess is sweat equity the deal goes well if they're putting up 80 percent of the equity and guaranteeing the loan then they're more obviously an active investor and are entitled to more of the transaction and bigger share of the profit so to speak or promote there's no cut and dry formula it really just depends on the partners their experience level what they're doing, are they guaranteeing the loan, how much involvement do they have in executing the business strategy. So I unfortunately can't be more specific because it all depends on the transaction. I understand. It is, I hope, well known out there that financing is the biggest deal killer. <laughs> what are typical deal killers when trying to get a loan? One thing is 
what I mentioned earlier is just the lack of financial capability, so i.e. net worth and liquidity. The parameters for that are more stringent with a traditional bank than they are with a private equity lender. The other hurdle is the experience of the borrower. The more experience, the longer the track record, the easier it'll be to find financing because the lender will have comfort that the borrower can execute on their business plan. Those two things are very important. And then the strategy itself is important. So if a borrower says, oh, you know, I can sell this property at a 4% cap rate, and that's my way of paying the loan back if I get a really strong price, and that 4% cap rate is an unreasonable assumption, then that's going to be a problem as well. So in other words, you know, the strategy of the borrower is very important as well. It's got to be realistic, proven in the market. Are 4% cap rates prevalent in the market? And can that be proven out to the lender? Those three things I think are really critical for getting a loan approved. You were there during the last recession. Can you give us an overview of what your life was like back then in terms of what was happening to the loans. The banks obviously cut back significantly, but at the same time, I know that they were begging their good borrowers to take money. Do you mind sharing a little bit of what was going on back then? Obviously, it was a very tumultuous time. and A lot of the banks shut down, either shut down completely or really shut down their lending. You know, a lot of the banks were just scared to do anything and it was very difficult to get traditional bank financing. The other thing that happened was the banks were obviously upside down on a lot of loans that they made. So they were working out those loans with the existing borrowers. So there was opportunity because the banks were anxious to get a lot of this stuff off their balance sheet. So they were willing to sell these properties at discounts or work things out with their borrowers, where the borrower could buy out the existing loan at a significant discount. So that created opportunities for guys like me who were able to source capital to fund those types of transactions. So what ended up happening was that a lot of private equity money was raised to be able to take advantage of that time to be able to buy at discounts, recapitalize deals, created a lot of opportunities. There was a lot of money made during that time for those who had the courage and knew that the world wasn't coming to an end. The real estate market wasn't coming to an end. Take advantage of buying at significant discounts below replacement costs. So there was good and bad like anything, but it was a tough time. Are these people that were able to get those incredible deals or renegotiate their loans, are they selling their properties today? You know, a lot of those deals were sold probably a few years ago mm-hmm. already. Profits were realized. I think, you know, the market, especially with rates so low over the last few years, had been very frothy for property sales. A lot of those deals that were done back in the recession were harvested in a probably you know, 2013, 14, 15. While some of those may be still around, I think most of that money was made back then. We are all wondering here what is happening to some investors, and uh, it's good to know that they, they <laughs> cashed out. I heard that you are very creative on getting financing 
I would love to hear some examples of your creativity. I think it all kind of boils down to having a good understanding of the capital markets, a good understanding of which capital sources are doing what. So I spend a lot of my time on understanding what different lenders, what different equity sources are interested in doing. One example was that there was a developer of a hotel in the Atlanta area whose lenders were basically looking to foreclose on the asset. And the property was in a good location. It just was maybe recently at the time completed about a year or so prior to me getting involved and was just ramping up. Basically, it was underwater. The vultures were circling and the borrower came to me to try to figure out a solution. It was really a situation where a traditional lender probably wouldn't have looked at this deal because, like I said, the deal was underwater. But I brought in a private equity firm who recognized that there was going to be some value in the deal. Basically, what we did, there's probably 15 or 16 lenders on the deal. We negotiated with each of the lenders to take them out. It was basically like herding cats. The bottom line was I found a private equity firm to do the deal. They certainly charged a lot of money to do it. But today, the property is doing great. The developer is, you know, realized a bunch of value in the asset. We've, I think I've refinanced that deal two or three times already in the last seven, eight years, we were able to save the asset for the owner and allow him to reap the benefits of the improvement in the market. That was one example of, quote, creativity. Another example is a situation I'm working on now, which is a development of a hotel in Atlanta. The developer has a loan a senior loan, construction loan proposal, but he's a little bit short on equity. What I've done is there's some creative sources of equity that, you know, not everybody knows about in that one source is uh, there's a called a PACE program, and it's a government instituted program. If you as a developer are spending money on energy-saving items like air conditioning or windows, you can basically find equity-like money to fund some of that. So as a developer, what it allows you to do, basically a cheap source of equity. So that money is priced at like 6.5%, amortized over 20 years. It's an, a creative way of trying to find some more equity for a developer who may be short on capital. In terms of creativity, again, it really just boils down to knowing what's going on in the market, what are the different capital sources, what are they doing, what are some of the various programs out there that are available potentially to real estate investors. It's just keeping your finger on the pulse of the capital markets. That is really incredible, John. I hope uh, you at least get free room in these hotels for life for doing that. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I didn't think about that. I should. What is the best way to find great lenders? You know, look, I, and this is somewhat self-serving. So what I do is if a borrower needs financing for a deal, I'll either take them to somebody I know. I've been doing this long enough where I have relationships. I do know lenders that I would say are good 
bankers. I do know other lenders or bankers that are bad that aren't great to deal with. That part of the answer is just experience. But when looking at a deal in a market where I'm not familiar with or don't have extensive relationships, you can get a general sense or I can get a general sense of whether these lenders or these bankers are good? Are they smart? Are they driven to get a deal done? A lot of guys will just say no because they don't like being busy and you know it's easy for them to say no. I had one situation a few years ago where the lender gave up on a deal because there was a ground lease on the property. It was a CMBS lender and they were initially having trouble getting comfortable with financing a deal that had a ground lease. But I knew that this same lender had done another deal with a ground lease. I called the banker and told them that they've done it before. They should be able to do it now because he basically told me he can't do it. And I took the time to try to find people within his bank that knew about the deal and knew about the structure and proved to the lender that I was work, working with that it could be done. And it ultimately got done, but it wouldn't have gotten done if I relied on this banker. So you just have a sense of who's going to do the work and who's going to go to bat for the, for the transaction. Because so some of these lenders, some of these bankers, they're just basically salesmen. They don't want to do the work necessary. But you just kind of get a feel for who's going to work. I've been doing this long enough where... I know in certain markets who those guys are, but other markets, you know, you got to do the research. Is there anything else that you think is important that our audience should know? It's a lot easier to find financing for apartments, retail. A lot of lenders are leery of these days for obvious reasons. The same thing goes for hospitality. The view is hospitality basically marks to market every day. In other words, it's the most sensitive asset class to the economy and people feel in general that we're kind of at the top of the market these days. In industrial, there's a lot of demand for, so that's a good asset class. Senior housing, same thing. There's a, a lot of money, a lot of liquidity in that asset class. Self-storage, same thing, is positive. Some asset classes are easier to finance than others. That obviously adds some flows. What about office? Does it go hand in hand with retail? The general feeling is, is that offices kind of peaked as well. Because you have leases, That could be a longer term in nature. There's a baked in cash flow in a lot of cases. So I think, you know, you got to pick your spots. So in certain markets, there's a lot of growth, job growth. And in those markets, I think the lenders are more apt or willing to lend into in other markets that have kind of stagnated in terms of job growth or there's some new construction. Lenders are a little bit more leery. So I think the office market in general, you just got to pick your spot. I don't think as an asset class, it's as risky as hospitality or retail. It's kind of right in the middle in terms of priority of asset class. How can our listeners get in touch with you? My company is ParamountCapitalAdvisors.com. My email address is John, J-O-H-N, at ParamountCapitalAdvisors.com, all one word. And my phone number, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me, is 312-767-3320. 
and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And as always, all of his contact info will be under show notes. So you guys can just reach out to John. Uh, John, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. We are very excited to have you here today. And uh, hopefully some of us will be working with you. I will definitely be giving you a call myself. I look forward to it. If you are learning from this podcast, I would really appreciate if you guys could write a review under the podcast app that you listen to. And if you know anyone who would be interested in learning more about commercial real estate investing, make sure to share this podcast with them. And I will see you next time.